This is a Clark University podcast. RFU contains grown-up themes and occasional coarse language when they get carried away. Please take care while listening. Hi, professors. This is Matthew Thomas Young, and I am a junior majoring in English and Screen Studies. Recommended for you this week is the film I'm a Cyborg, But That's Okay from 2006, made in South Korea and directed by Park Chan-wook. The film stars Lim Soo-jung and Rain, and I am recommending this film for you because I find the way it visualizes mental illness and blends different film genres thought-provoking, and because it features a light-hearted chaos that I would love to hear your thoughts on. This. This. This is recommended for you. For you. For you. A podcast where Clark University Screen Studies professors watch and discuss films suggested by Clark University students. Welcome to RFU, recommended for you. This is Rox Sommer. I am Soren Sorensen. I'm Hugh Mannon. No S this week. No S. No this S. Week. No S. <laughs> We're here to discuss the 2006 South Korean film I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay by Park Chan Wook. It stars Lim Soo Young as Cha Young Gun, our titular cyborg, and Rain as Park Il Sung. A friend and romantic companion met uh, at an inpatient uh, hospital (laughs) and mental health facility uh, where much of this film is set. Uh, What else should we tell folks before diving in? I have in my hand here a uh, text message, a text exchange, a little pregame from yesterday at 5.14 p.m. (laughs) from one Dr. Hugh S. Mannon. It says I am an ex- I'm having <laughs> I am having an extremely negative response to this film. Fair warning, that was the yeah. text, and then and then from our producer Andrew Hart, sounds like we might have our first spicy episode. Spicy, and all I had to do was search spicy in my uh, text messages, and this came right up, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> so, if at the, at the risk of uh, editorializing too too early from the jump here, uh, Hugh, what was your negative reaction? When did it um, present itself, and and how did it yeah how did it play out over the course of watching the film? Sure. So, yeah, I think that the the problem here is probably uh, related to what we would say about a plot summary of the film in the sense that we've got two main characters who are and I don't even know if you'd call them unreliable narrators. They, they seem to be in various ways disconnected from reality. And so it becomes tough to tell whether you're looking at anything approximating reality or whether what we're seeing is a hallucination. And I'll use hallucination very broadly. Um, you know, it could be any sort of psychological phenomena that sort of changes what, what constitutes reality. And because of this, um, and, and, you know, there are plenty of films that do this, and we could talk about what some of those are. But because of this, I found this film uniquely unrelatable, like to the point that like, and this is meant as no, so Matthew Thomas, who uh, suggested this, so I'm sure we'll be listening to this at some point. This is absolutely no slam <laughs> on Matthew Thomas. I think there's a big difference in taste that <laughs> probably accounts for my negative reaction to this. But what I learned in this is that I really need the films that I watch on some level to be grounded in some sort of reality. It's not to say that it has to all be clearly reality and and absolutely objective and somehow like delivering consistency at every step. But this is a film that does not trade in and out of reality in any sort of discernible way that I can figure. It seems like we're constantly distanced from anything like an objective reality. And because of that, I just find it almost impossible to watch. 
Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so I did have a very different uh, reaction, but one that doesn't really um, disagree, like, with your assessment of what happens there. What I really sort of admired about this film and thought was rather remarkable was how consistent it enabled us to live within the character's own realities. So nearly every character uh, in this film would be considered, you know, disabled or, you know, struggling with intellectual disabilities or like not struggling, just living. Uh, and rather than uh, having us enter this space with an able-bodied character who then sees <laughs> or like witnesses such lives and um, such experiences and their effects, we just enter <laughs> like we're just there with them and we're we're in their minds in their like madness and i think something i i can't say it's like my favorite film ever and it, it one that certainly like puzzles me and one that i was excited to watch having seen some of park chan wook's other films and I am consistently confused as to what I make of them. And for part of me thinks that's great. Mm. You know, uh, they're not like films that I love that are dear to me, but they're films that like stay with me because I don't know if I have seen anything quite like this otherwise. Uh, and to have that actual like narrative experience where I am with <laughs> A person who believes herself to be a cyborg and like what what does that mean day in and day out um if one is a cyborg one needs to recharge one needs to understand the messages coming to oneself from one's grandmother who herself is on the verge um of death like like what is that like and so cinema has as a realist medium right like as a medium that like uh addresses our sensory experiences like our own bodies uh there's just this way that it provides this little two-hour <laughs> journey into 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 such a reality that that is not our own and then we get to turn it off and go back to grading <laughs> papers <laughs> yeah i mean you know having the yeah. negative response to it that that you had um I, I i think i had a similar response to it but I, I have the same response as you, Rox, in, in that I'm kind of glad that it's it exists or something. Like, I, it, maybe that's not maybe that's paying short shrift to what you just said. I mean, I, I, I sort of was like, well, you sort of have to give it up for this film because it's absolutely ridiculous and just bombastic and over the top and kind of, um, you know, maximalist. Uh, but my I took very few notes um, on this film. Uh, so, <laughs> but one of the things that it, it reminded me of is that, um, and and just see if, see if you can follow me here. 30 years ago in 1991, Nirvana released Nevermind, okay? Um, and this was this is on September 24th, 1991. So it's this big 30th anniversary. A week before that, the signature record or records of 1991 uh, came out on September 17th, which was Guns N' Roses, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. Two CDs that came out on the same day. It wasn't a double album that you got a special price for. You were paying $16.99 a piece for these or $17.99 a piece, depending upon where you, um, you know, where you bought them. I worked at Sam Goody, so I got an employee discount. <laughs> what but, does this have to do? So here's the point. Here's the point. I'm finally going to get to the point. 
so Guns N' Roses had put out their their sort of first LP called Appetite for Destruction a few years before, uh, previous to Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. And it it's sold, you know, millions and millions of copies. They become the biggest rock band in the world. You know, they live forever and ever, amen. And they don't put out another record for like 20 years after these Use Your Illusion records. But my point is that when you when you do something this phenomenal and this big like Appetite for Destruction, you are able to then follow it up with whatever the hell you want to follow it up with. And is that part of the problem with this film? Park Chan-wook um, had this famous uh, Vengeance trilogy um, going back to um, Old Boy in 2003, probably most famously. And then in 2005, Lady Vengeance and Boy Goes to Heaven. These films made him this kind of Tarantino-esque giant filmmaker from South Korea that he, he was maybe given too much carte blanche to follow it up. And that's why this movie is sort of all over the map, um, as Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 is as a listening experience. If you have any interest in it, you can revisit it on its 30th anniversary. I mean, it's, it's different than a sophomore slump. So you're arguing for something that's kind of like a, a strange inverse of a sophomore slump, whereby someone you know has this massive right. success and then all of a sudden turns it around and, and almost... So you wouldn't want to say that this is sort of a deliberate middle finger extended to fans or anything like that but it's no. more like it's it's like pure excess you know it, yeah it's pure excess it seems indulgent right? yeah and and it's not the it's not even a yeah certainly not a sophomore slump but i think it's when somebody's at the height of their powers and they yeah. kind of and they and they they take a turn that you're not expecting which is which is maybe Great. I mean, it's he, he's sort of uncompromising in, in what he did, but at the same time, it's like not nearly as good as for me, like a, as as interesting a watcher as, as you know as rewatchable a group of films as the as the one before you know a film as as for instance Old Boy, which I just actually yeah. watched recently um, and really love. And you know, considering you know that this is this is uh, a signature film of a subgenre of South Korean cinema. Yeah. Um, and and I, I feel like this one is is all over the map. I, for a while, maybe I've seen Blade Runner too many times. I kind of wished that she was a cyborg by the end of the film. I wasn't sure. I was like, what is it? What is this trying to tell us exactly? Um, but, you know, it's it, so I, I, I had the same issues that that Hugh had, I think, which is that I wasn't sure what it was. And maybe it, it had a slight identity crisis. Um, you know, possibly mimicking what was going on in the psyches of, of some of the supporting characters. I mean, I wonder if a, a more favorable comparison would be to Hitchcock's Psycho after making Vertigo a North by Northwest and taking like a hard left. I mean, it sounds like we wouldn't <laughs> end up on the same page evaluatively, but from many people's perspective, Psycho was totally unexpected and out there and uh, obscene in a way, you know, grotesque in a way that wasn't fitting of a director of that stature. Uh, mm. at that time. And I think this film is like nearly any film <laughs> uh, making like reference and allusion to that film in and of itself, you know, in its in its themes, but also in the opening score. And then there's the quintessential line where she's been keeping the secret. And we and her uh you know, Chao Young-gun, and we know her secret of being a cyborg, but she hasn't, like, shared it with anyone at the facility. Uh, but when but when Park Il-sung calls her a psycho, she whispers, I'm not a psycho, I'm a cyborg. And so I, you know, I was seeing connections there. Um, and I don't know. Yeah, I guess it's just, like, 
it's a little bit more i get compared to his other films it's a little bit more out of control and all over the place but like I, I guess my respectful <laughs> characterization of that is you make some solid films, you get to have some fun. And this is what it seems like this is what he wanted to make. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say even though, you know, there's a very kind of clear reason why we're getting this sort of hallucinatory reality, it could also be compared to sort of like a dreamscape in the sense that how dreams work is sort of beyond us as humans. Like we can try to analyze them and make sense of them. But what goes on in in the dreamscape is very unique to us, very personal. It can really only be interpreted by us, if if at all. Um, And the famous thing, and I'm not sure who said this, I don't know where this comes from. I know I didn't make it up, but it's definitely true, which is that there's really, there's like nothing on earth more boring than hearing someone else tell you about their yes. dream. I'm so I'm so glad that you said that and, and I didn't say it. I forgot who says that. It's a famous It is it's famous oh and I don't gosh. know. Yeah, it is it's a brutal thing. And I remember people trying to tell me about their dreams when I was in high school or college and just thinking, Wow, is there is there a less interesting thing yeah, to hear about a person? Stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I guess if this film had an outer frame through which I could interpret the inner dreamscape, I think I would be okay with this and somehow like I would find a way to grab onto this, but it feels to me just like a slick pane of glass. Like mm. I can't get a grip on any of it because it's all part of this dreamscape. So like at the very end of this film to start at the end, um, this couple who we've followed through the film are on the top of a, a, a bluff that's sort of like in some wasteland someplace with no greenery, no trees. And they're waiting for lightning to strike so that, the female protagonist will explode like a nuclear bomb or so she thinks. And it's pouring down rain. Their tent blows away. Rain is soaking the dishes of food that they've brought with them. And she says the precious wine got rain in it. And then they freak out trying to cork the bottle, which the male protagonist does with his pinky. Then he brushes his teeth with an electric toothbrush. What I wrote down in my notes was, if you think this is a great movie moment, you will love this film. (laughs) How many times have you seen a character stick his finger in a wine bottle in a rainstorm? I can't do it. But like, what is any of that? You know what I mean? Like, so I think that there's maybe an internal rationale for that. It somehow makes sense in terms of the characters. So, you know, Rox and I are hardcore fans of Mindhunter. Mindhunter is a show where we're getting real pathology and and somehow uh, characters, you know, the protagonists of that show are working to explain these real pathologies, these real historical figures, serial killers and so forth. And I am deep into that because at its core, there is at least the premise of an answer, right? There's at least the sort of assumption that we could work towards an explanation of the pathologies that led these serial killers to commit but, all these horrible right. crimes. Right. But I this is the thing. So I think part of what fascinates us in in series like Mindhunter is because those characters' pathologies had profound effects on so many people, i.e. they committed violence to others. And what we have here, which I actually think is way more regular way more common and every day is that when one's own hangups, one's own like passions or obsessions, fears, like madness, it has effects on your life and like those closest to you. And 
not to be like down on like all the work that happens at like health facilities, but like one reason such spaces do exist is to contain those so that it doesn't proliferate and affect others. And I think there's a sense here with our characters that they are all alone in their pain uh, and in their very like unusual personal singular subjectivities and it has real effects for them so this film starts with lim su jung attempting suicide or at least that's how it looks like from the outside from the inside of her reality she is following the directions of her workplace and linking up electronic technology to her internal organs but that means cutting her wrist what i find fascinating uh, about this plot and these two characters and that <laughs> those final moments we get is we have two people who are like helping each other out. She's still trying to like maybe blow up the world, but like, I also was hoping to hear from you, Hugh, like it seems like psychoanalysis would be helpful here. Like part of the challenge maybe is like, what moments are we supposed to accept at face value as like literal? And when when two people get naked in the rain with a bottle of wine waiting for a you know lightning to strike are we even actually talking about lightning striking are we talking about something else yeah i i think like as as somebody who kind of comes at everything through psychoanalysis um i just immediately hit a brick wall with this and and the reason i hit a brick wall is because this is a film that's almost like baiting you to psychoanalyze yeah. its fictional characters, but you can't psychoanalyze fictional <laughs> characters. Like the psychoanalysis is a process that, that emerges between two people in dialogue. And so, you know, like in a sense, the problem is that these characters in the final analysis are fictional. And so like, as I'm, as I'm watching through this, I keep thinking to myself, you know, as I said with Mindhunter, real pathologies might be interesting to investigate in a detailed way, but invented pathologies can be horrendously tedious because there's nothing behind them. Yeah. And I guess like, I, so so my psychoanalytic impulse just immediately ground to a halt in that way. And I think there's ways to read the overall film yeah. as somehow allegorical. And I'm not sure I could do that right now, but like, I think there's ways that the big architecture of this or the bigger picture could be read through the lens of psychoanalysis. But I don't think the characters can because I, I think like, in the final analysis, it's all made up. I, I see what you're saying, that it's not authentic. But in a way, this film is sort of begging you to say, okay, well, what do you think was going on with this person in their childhood that caused this? And what about the mice? And what about the radishes? And what about, <laughs> you know, that these things yeah. all represent something else. And, and yeah. from a, you know, from a semiotic perspective, it's like, th those are things that I was sort of wondering about, too. I, I also found the, the film to have this, this mood that I don't often connect to, for lack of a better word, I'll call whimsy. Um, which it, it felt a little bit like it was trying to do like an Amelie thing. Yeah. Um, and, and I, and Amelie kind of knocked it out of the park and this didn't, and I, and I don't know why. And I was sort of curious about that because I'm, I'm not a person that's drawn to whimsy very often. Um, but it, it felt like they were trying to, they were trying to sort of thread the needle between whimsy and this kind of more disturbing sort of, you know, inner turmoil and mental illness thing. So, and, and maybe not getting either of them quite right.
quite right. Yeah, I mean, Matthew Thomas in his recommendation refers to a lighthearted chaos as something right. that he yeah. is attracted to in this film. And I don't know, like or chaotic lightheart lightheartedness. Chaotic lightheartedness. <laughs> and you know, like he he also said there's something about blending of genres that that appealed to him with this film. And I I will say we're we're studying screwball comedy in our class this week, and I know I happen to know that Matthew Thomas and I are both on the same page when it comes to bringing up Baby and Catherine Hepburn, Susan in particular, whereas for many of his classmates, she's like too much. <laughs> and and she is this kind of like a maddening and like mad character. And I, I think to speak to like the other, you know, side of this film is that this is also a romantic comedy in ways. And I think in ways that like 1930s screwball comedies are rom-coms too, and that they're all about uh, you know, finding someone willing to join you in your own madness and, and create a reality and a world between the two of you. And and it's like way less blown out of proportion or formalized uh, in screwball comedies. But I, I see connections there. And, and I think that might be what's intriguing me too. Yeah. I'm thinking of other directors who sort of make films in this style um there is an aesthetic here like one of the aesthetics that obviously people who were just listening to this uh you know it's a little tough to describe or or picture but um it's that sort of i almost hate to say it it's that clockwork orange approach to like wide angle cinematography where everything sort of bows out at the camera mm -hmm. in this really disturbing way as if to sort of connote hallucinations mm. um that's definitely happening it reminds me a lot of like robert downey seniors films like greaser's palace i mean really oddball 70s yeah. kind of hippie and post-hippie era experimental narratives yodorowsky mm. um a little bit i mean and those films are off-putting, no question about it. Um, I think those films are very artfully made, but at the same time exist to alienate you. I'd be really interested, and I will, uh, talk to Matthew Thomas about whether, you know, is this a film that on the first pass you just thought, yep, I'm right there with this? Or was this deeply alienated, <laughs> deeply alienating and took you a couple views to kind of get into its rhythms? I've only watched it once. So, I mean, maybe this is something that you'd have to see twice. I, I've seen yeah. it twice, and I was, I guess I just was not alienated. Like, I i was curious, and, like, just i the first time through, I just went with the flow. I was like, I yeah, I have no idea what's going on here, but, like, I'm genuinely curious. And every time, you know, when she arrives at the hospital and the character who you initially believe to be a nurse, but you learn to be another patient, is taking her around and introducing her to everyone else there. I, I love I'm that like, scene. ooh, yeah, tell me great. more. Yeah. And then you find out that she these are just stories that she herself has made up yeah. because she has severe <laughs> yeah. men memory loss as a result of electroshock therapy. And you're like, well, for that, for those last three minutes, I was in her reality. And and there's sort of these yeah. various passes between not just our two protagonists, but the other patients in this space with them where you get to like inhabit the ways in which their mind works. And I guess the first time through, I was just like intrigued. And then the second time, I did find the film to be a lot more of a bummer. <laughs> Because I was like, hmm. I, I don't know, I guess I was more strongly connecting with the characters and really feeling for them and feeling for the lack of support that Cha Young-gun has from her mother. 
Right. To to get to that screwball point again, like there were also moments that I found really delightful, like when we step out for a second and we're with him and he is trying to understand her reality and work within it while also not sharing it literally with her. Yeah. From a certain perspective, that could be like duplicitous, but yeah. I think it's also sort of what she needs, you know, and that's not what her nurses and doctors are doing for her. Um, they can't even get to the point to understand that she understands herself as a cyborg and what that means and like the stakes of that. And, and that's when we're starting to see parts of her body that we haven't seen before, like her back and stuff, right? And, and 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 he's in a way overstepping, but you sense this romance between them at that point. And I think that you know, again, that that part there was some cuteness to mm-hmm. it as well. I didn't I didn't yeah. find it to be problematic or anything like that. But am I right about that? By the way, that we're not supposed to know whether he's actually using the scalpel to cut her. Is is he drawing that on or cutting it into her? Flesh? or is it just not is it just ambiguous uh, I mean is any of this happening at all are we here right. are we talking about this film <laughs> because it's either cute or grotesque yeah right yeah it's either really cute or really awful I think it's what she's imagining but she it doesn't bother her because if she's a if she's a cyborg then that's just like this this you know t- it's right. just tissue and cellular content that's just you know and so to, to keep going with this one of the fascinating recurring elements that happens for me is his like transfer rituals Mm. His crime <laughs> is that he is a thief, but then we also learn that he's essentially taking from people what is often weighing them down, such that a character who feels he needs to always move backwards through space. Yeah, he re- and apologize. And apologize for everything. For yeah, everything. Yeah. He was a very sweet and charming actor. I thought that was wonderful, that character. Yeah, he relieves him. Like, Park Il-sun relieves him of that burden. And then there's the scene where Cha Young-gun is uh, put in that green padded room and force-fed through a tube. And again, what he does is he takes all uh, the skills and experiences and lived realities of his fellow patients and uses them to free her. And of course, this is within her reality so that she shrinks like he does. She like is transported through singing like the yodeler. Um, And as a result, gets to live out her fantasy desire of shooting up the hospital. Yeah. It's pretty brutal, but they don't die. (laughs) Her doctor doctor shows up fine later. And so then we can also understand that as something that she just needed. She... It seems like she needed to do that, you know? Do I sound totally insane? Yeah. <laughs> she needed well, to no, do that. Well, no, but I mean... And I, he made it happen. I, right. And I, I just... I, I think, like, when you, hearing you explain <laughs> it wins me right. over. But then... But then... Like, then we've got to come up against the yodeling. <laughs> <laughs> So like the the yodeling is in a sense sincere. Yeah. So so it's not it's not like meant ironically. No. There's there's like yodeling that underscores a particular scene right after it happens right after a particularly brutal and tough to watch force feeding scene and then the very next scene is underscored with like epic yodeling yodeling and and it's not just that so there's bavarian music it will shock no no one in the audience that <laughs> human note that yodeling. it reminds me of like the price is right but like the price is right that that's hilarious on the price is right it's just not funny in the context of like an otherwise serious plot scenario to sort of loop back to the beginning with hugh saying unrelatable 
I have spent a good chunk of my last three weeks tube feeding my cat daughter. And so, you know, this this film did hit. And so I guess I, I, I was I was relating sort of from the more Park Il-Soon perspective of like, what what is going on, girl? <laughs> what can we do to yeah. get you to eat? Tell me what, you know, like, oh, and, wow. and that impossibility of accessing, the real impossibility of accessing another person's internal reality, never mind a cat's. <laughs> this film, like, really did, yeah, did move me in that way. All right. Well, would we recommend this film? <laughs> sure. I don't know. Yeah, it's a hard no for me. <laughs> if I'm going to be the tiebreaker, I got to say no. I mean, I, I can't I, I can't be like, I'm glad it exists. Just And then, yeah, you should watch it. But the, I'd rather you watch Handmaiden. I mean, I think he's a yeah. brilliant filmmaker, and I loved Handmaiden, and I loved Old Boy. Yep. So if you're going to watch one of his films, if you've never seen any of them, I'd rather you watch those two first. Well, I was grateful for the opportunity to watch a lesser-known Park Chan-wook Me too. Title. I'm grateful for the opportunity. I'm just, I'm just not going to tell my friends. Let's let's be very clear on this. You know, students students sometimes throw us softball pitches and definitely front load films that they know we're going to like. And this was a much riskier proposition in terms yeah. of recommendation. And I applaud that. Thank you, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Thomas. Young. Recommended for you is a Clark University podcast. All opinions expressed are those of the faculty participants. If you'd like to recommend a film for an upcoming episode of RFU, you can leave a voicemail with your suggestion at 508-798-4355. 508-798-4355. The Recommended for You podcast is produced by Andrew Hart for Clark University. Music by Jimmy Jackson. RFU logo by AJ Simmons. Film noir is my number one, but screwball is my number two.